you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Um, those of you who are familiar with Major League Baseball, you will know the name Cal Ripken Jr. Baseball standout. Uh, he had a, just a stellar professional career. And when it was all said and done, Cal Ripken Jr. became really an extraordinary ball player by doing a very ordinary thing. You know what it was? He showed up for work. He just showed up for work. He did it again and again and again for a record 2,632 consecutive times. He was a Hall of Fame shortstop and third baseman, but he first appeared in the Baltimore Orioles starting lineup on May 30th, 1982. And his name would not be absent from that lineup until September 20th, 1998. In 1985, Ripken sprained his ankle in just the second game of the season, but he finished the game and was back on the field for the very next game a mere two days later. And so the baseball world was on notice that injury or no injury, sickness or no sickness, Cal Ripken was going to show up, and show up he did. September 6, 1995, in a game against the Angels, Cal Ripken Jr. really set a mark for the ages by playing his 2,131st straight game on national television and before a home field crowd that honored him with a 22-minute long standing ovation, if you can imagine that. Because he had done what many had said could not be done in breaking the record for consecutive games formerly held by Lou Gehrig. 2019, he published a book in which he basically tells his story and he gave it an appropriate title. The title of the book is this, Just Show Up. Just Show Up. Something can be said for people who show up. Aren't you grateful for the people in your life who just show up and they've proven themselves time and time and time again? People who show up, it might not be that they stand head and shoulders above everyone else when it comes to talent or when it comes to ability. Uh, they may not be beyond ordinary, but for whatever reason, they show up and they can be counted on to do their thing and what makes them extraordinary is that really they do it with consistency. Now, C.S. Lewis actually said that there, there's really no such thing as ordinary people. He said, you've never talked to a mere mortal, but it's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, that kind of thing. And, and the point that he was making is that as human beings, we've been uniquely made in the image of God, and there's really nothing ordinary about it. We've been given divine purpose by virtue of our creation. And each one of us have been uniquely gifted, uniquely wired. And yet most of us would say that ordinary is the word that best describes us. And the fact of the matter is, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and it's God who makes the difference. He doesn't delight in a man's strength, no, God delights in the one who is keenly aware of his need for God's grace. And that's something that we learn in these early chapters of Exodus involving the life of Moses. Now, by the time the story catches up here in the third chapter of Exodus, Moses has been a man who's just simply showing up. 
the first 40 years of his life were spent in the palace in Egypt. We're not told a whole lot about that in Scripture. The only thing that's said is that Moses was uh, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he was privileged to the finest education that Egypt could afford at the time. And yet there came a point in his life when he, he in faith, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was looking forward to the reward which is in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that he considered the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than anything Egypt could offer him. And so in chapter 2, we've seen how Moses, he identifies with his people, the Israelites. And there was a particular day when he went out and he saw an Egyptian taskmaster savagely beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And so Moses sees the need, he springs to action, but he gets ahead of himself, gets ahead of God, and ends up killing the Egyptian and buries his body in the sand. Now, you know the story. Uh, He discovers that the thing is found out, and so Moses, upon learning that Pharaoh uh, is basically putting a hit out on him, Moses runs and he flees all the way to the wilderness of Midian where he'll spend the next 40 years of his life. So by the time we get to Exodus chapter 30, Moses is 80 years old. For 40 years, he's been there in the wilderness watching sheep. Day in and day out, Moses has had a very ordinary life. He's been showing up. And so that's where we pick up here in verse number one. Now here's the thing. On this very ordinary day in Moses' life, there's a very extraordinary thing that's going to happen. And so if you've got your Bible there, Exodus 3, verse number 1, notice the Scripture says that Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now that's another name for Mount Sinai. So this is a very significant place where Moses uh, ends up. Verse 2 says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, the word bush there translates a Hebrew word that basically means bramble or a thorn bush. In fact, I've been to this part of the world, and uh, you'll notice in, in the wilderness of that part of the world, these kinds of thorn bushes are just everywhere. They grow everywhere. So this is just a common, ordinary bush, but what's happening to this bramble bush is anything but ordinary. In fact, it's supernatural. It's extraordinary. Moses sees that it's burning, but it's not consumed. And Moses says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and Hittites 
the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now imagine at that point Moses is like, all right, it's go time. God has said that he's going to deliver his people. This is what we've been longing for out of those years in which Israel has been kept in bondage. Now imagine that maybe his tune changes long about verse number 10 when God says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It's one thing for God to say that he's about to rescue his people out of their bondage. It's another thing entirely for God to say, Moses, I want to use you as an instrument in my hands. I'm going to accomplish salvation, the salvation of my people, but I've got something for you to do. I'm going to use you in the process. And so here's what happens in this passage of Scripture at the burning bush. I'm going to speak from this subject. Any old bramble will do. The bush is ordinary. In many ways, it's a picture of just the ordinary man that Moses is at this point. And what makes him extraordinary, it's not Moses himself, but rather it's the God who calls Moses. It's the God who equips Moses. And folks, the same thing's true in my life and in your life. So in this passage of Scripture, up until this point, we've seen all that Moses has experienced. He's in the wilderness. This is the place uh, that's used, uh, the word that's used there, translated wilderness in verse 1. It's the word midbar. Now, that's an interesting Hebrew word. It comes from a root word, debar, which means to speak. And so the idea is God has something to say in this wilderness place where Moses has been for some 40 years. And that reminds us that the wilderness is often the place where God speaks. It's a place where he communicates some of his most important words, where he teaches us some of the most important lessons that we need to learn in life. Oftentimes, it's not the mountaintop moments of life where we really learn something about the faithfulness of God, but often it's down in the valleys of life. Often it's in the mid-bars of life. It's the wilderness place where God really proves his faithfulness to us time and time again. And so for Moses, this wilderness of Midian is going to be a formative place like no other. It's going to be an enriching place uh, spiritually for Moses because this is the place where Moses is going to meet God. This is a place with no distractions. It's a place where he's cut off from the rest of civilization. He's basically reduced to nothing but basic necessities, now in this wilderness of all places, Moses is forced to cast himself upon the mercy of God's gracious providence. And it's there that God reveals his truth to Moses. Now folks, listen, don't discredit the wilderness moments of your life because it's often in these seasons that God wants to do his best work in your life. Now let's just be honest, we live in such a fast-paced society, we've got people coming at us from all directions, messages coming at us from all directions. Sometimes it's just hard to be still, isn't it? Sometimes it's just hard to get quiet where we can get a word from the Lord. Sometimes God will put you in a midbar for that very purpose so that he can capture your attention. And it's all part of the process of him making Moses into the man of God that God wants Moses to be. 
So spiritually, this this wilderness of Midian is an enriching place for Moses. Relationally, it's going to be an eye-opening place for Moses because it's during these 40 years in Midian that Moses becomes a husband, Moses becomes a father. Uh, Moses settles down and he begins to, to live the life of a shepherd and he tends the sheep that ultimately don't even belong to him but belong to his father-in-law. And so God wants a shepherd to lead his people Israel. Here you find the making of that shepherd. Long before Moses is going to be leading the sheep of the house of Israel, God is going to have him leading sheep that belong to his father-in-law. So he's working out the details of Moses' life. God's working behind the scenes, bringing Moses right to the place where God wants him to be. And then practically, this wilderness of Midian is going to be an equipping place for Moses. He's going to learn something about the geography of the wilderness. He's going to learn something uh, about the faithfulness of God. He's going to learn something as God speaks into his life here in Exodus chapter 3 and reveals himself to Moses in a very powerful way. Now, that's what happens. Isn't it an amazing thing how your life can change from one day to the next? You ever thought about how life can just change on the turn of a dime? I mean, that's what happens to Moses here in Exodus chapter 3. He's been tending sheep. He's been in the wilderness for 40 years. And he gets up one morning, and little did he know that this would be the day where God would do something in his life that he would never forget. On a day that began like any other day, Moses goes out to be with the flock. Moses leads that flock through the wilderness to the base of Mount Horeb. But this is a day in which Moses, his life is going to be changed because this is the day that God is going to reveal himself to Moses and call him to be the deliverer of Israel. Now, I want you to notice just a few things from these verses that we've read. Number one, notice with me uh, what I'm calling a simple routine. We, we see here the importance of just a simple routine there in verse number one. Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law. Basically, he's doing the same thing that he had been doing for 40 years in his life up until this point. Forty years have passed between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. Forty years Moses has been there in that midbar wilderness of Midian. He's a lowly shepherd. His task, his daily tasks involve watching over the flocks that belong to his father-in-law. The sheep that he watched weren't even his. His daily routine involves leading these sheep through the wilderness where they could graze and find pasture somewhere up to the edge of the desert. Moses has done this every single day for 40 years. That's his life now. And let me tell you, it's a far cry from the palace of Egypt. But it's here that he's learning the lesson of being faithful in the ordinary humdrum routine of everyday life. Remember what Jesus said about those who are faithful in the little? If you're faithful in the little, often you'll be made ruler over much. So before Moses is going to be made ruler over the house of Israel, he's he's proven to be faithful in the little, the routine of life. And so he gets up this morning, he puts on his sandals like he does every other day. The sunrise was like it had been every other day. But little does Moses know that this is the day in which God is going to break a 40-year silence and powerfully reveal himself to Moses. Moses has been minding his own business. 
And God's going to break through in power in his life. That's, by the way, that's often how God works in life, folks. A person never knows when your life might be forever changed by an encounter with the living God. Not a chance encounter. This is not a random, coincidental encounter. It might seem like that from Moses' perspective, but it's never that way from God's point of view because it's the providence of God that's been bringing Moses to this particular point in his life. Not a moment had gone by in Moses' life where God's providential hand had not been leading him somehow in some way, going all the way back to his infancy. When he was a little baby in a basket there cast upon the Nile River, it was the providential hand of God that directed that little basket to Pharaoh's daughter. It was the providential hand of God that saw to it that Moses would be brought up there in the palace of Pharaoh, given the background that he had. It was not by accident. It was not by coincidence. No, it's providence. And even in his own failures and fleeing to Midian, God is working behind the scenes in Moses' life to bring him to this particular moment in time where God's going to reveal himself to Moses. Now, that's true for Moses. Y'all, that's true for us. What you tend to think is as, as just random chance coincidence in your life, as a believer in the sovereignty of God, you, listen, I don't believe that for one second. I'm not saying that every moment or, or circumstance in your life is a burning bush moment, but the details of my life and your life are not inconsequential. God is in the details of life. Even the mundane, ordinary, everyday details of life. You know, some people have this idea of God, that God is sort of like a watchmaker who's sort of created the world. He's spun up the, you know, the watch, and then he's just sort of checked out to watch it wind down slowly. That he's not intimately involved in, in the details of my life or your life or creation. Listen, Jesus said that there's not one sparrow that falls from the sky and drops to the earth that our Father in heaven's not aware of. Jesus said that the very numbers of the hairs of your head are numbered by God, and he knows every star by name. That, that's not a God who's remote. No, the Bible tells us that there's a God in heaven who is intimately acquainted with every detail of my life. There's nothing in my life that will ever take him by surprise. No, I'm trusting, I'm trusting the providential guiding hand of God. And when you find yourself in just those routine Moments in life where you're seeking direction, maybe you're needing direction in some area. You come to a crossroads in your life. You don't know what to do, or maybe you don't even know which end is up. What can you do? You simply trust the providential hand of God to lead you. He's proven himself faithful over and over and over again, and he'll do it one more time. And that's something you can take to the bank. I think sometimes we forget that 99% of life is ordinary. <laughs> The daily grind, clocking into the office, taking the kids to school, changing diapers while you've got another little one clinging to your leg. The daily grind of life. And you wonder, is God in this? Absolutely God is in this. He's involved in the details of life. He tells his people in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That was true for Israel as a nation 
But listen, don't you think that's also true for Moses at this point individually? God has plans for Moses' life. God has a design for Moses' life. God has a future that he has in mind and a hope that he has in mind for his life. Same thing's true for you. God ultimately has a plan in mind for your life, plans for your welfare, not for evil. In God, we find our hope. In Christ, we have a future. God knew where to find Moses in the midbar of Midian. And let me tell you something. He knows where to find you too. He knows right where you are. And so you keep doing what you've been doing because here's the thing. Before you know it, God may break through in a powerful way. At the least expected time, it's been my experience, God doesn't write the details of his plan for us in the sky, but he will guide you each and every day of your life as you look to his word, as you trust his providential hand, and do what Elizabeth Elliot said, just do the next thing. Just show up. Just keep showing up. Do the next thing. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliot, who was martyred, missionary who was martyred, trying to take the gospel to a remote tribe in the Amazon. But she popularized this, this poem, Do the Next Thing. Listen to this. Many a question, many a fear, many a doubt has its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow, O child of the king. Trust it to Jesus and do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before you with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all results and do the next thing. Listen, that's what Moses is doing there in the midbar. He got up one morning to do the next thing, and let me tell you, it was a day in which he met God in a powerful, powerful way. So notice the second thing here. Not only a simple routine, but notice, secondly, a supernatural encounter. Moses experiences a supernatural encounter as he's going about his simple daily routine. There's something that catches his eye. There's something that is spectacular, that arrests his attention, and he witnesses a thing that's so out of the ordinary, so incredible that it defies explanation. And you read in verse 2 that he has what can only be described as a supernatural encounter. Now notice what he sees. Verse 2 says that the angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And Moses looks, and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. Now, again, a bramble bush in the desert, that's nothing extraordinary. It's nothing unusual. But what's happening to this particular bush is anything but ordinary. It's not simply on fire, but there's something different about the fire in this bush that was different from anything else that Moses had ever seen. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I guarantee you that Moses had some stories that he could tell during those 40 years in the wilderness. Most guys I know that spend a lot of time outdoors, they've got stories to tell, you know? Critters that they've seen and shot and killed and ate, and that kind of thing. This was something totally different. Moses had never seen this particular kind of experience before. He sees this bush that's on fire, but there's something different about the fire. There's something different in that this flame is not consuming the bush. That is, the fire is not using the bush as a, sense, a, a source of fuel. 
It's a self-generated, self-existent flame of fire that was out of the ordinary. This is extraordinary. This is supernatural. And the bush itself was not being reduced to ashes. And so Moses stops, and Moses wants to see what's going on. And the only explanation that we're given here is that it's the angel of the Lord who's appearing to him in the midst of this flame, in the midst of the bush. I need to pay close attention to what's happening here because this is, this is no ordinary flame. This is what theologians refer to as a theophany, which is a particular manifestation of the presence of God in a powerful way. Oftentimes you go through Scripture and whenever God shows up in a particular manifest way, it's always accompanied by the flame of His glory. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham sees something very similar with a flaming torch. That's the only way he could describe it. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch as God was passing his way. There's Moses' experience here in Exodus 3. Exodus chapter 19, when Moses is on the mountain with God, the entire nation of Israel, after he leads them out of Egypt, they're going to witness the entire mountaintop of Mount Sinai on fire with the flame of God's manifest presence. Later on, in the tabernacle, this manifest presence of God is going to come and, and, and dwell the holy of holies of the tabernacle, and later the temple. And something very similar to Exodus chapter 3 that happens in Luke chapter 2, also to some shepherds who were out in the Judean countryside, just outside of Bethlehem, when there's a heavenly host that appears and there's a bright light that terrifies them. What is it that they're encountering? It's the glory of God announcing the news of Christ's birth. And there in the manger, you have, listen, you have glory incarnate. You have the Son of God himself, the glory of God, the radiance of God incarnate in that tiny baby in Bethlehem. So much so that John says that the Word was made flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So it's not so much what Moses sees here in Exodus chapter 3 as much as it is who Moses sees. And of course, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God himself who's going to change Moses' life. <laughs> Isn't it an amazing thing? So that's what he sees, but then notice what he hears. Verse 4 says that when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush. So the idea is, once God has Moses' attention, he then begins to speak into his life. And I believe that word when in verse 4 is very important. It's a word that means at the same time. The idea is God speaks to Moses at the same time he stops and turns aside. Moses stops what he's doing. He stops in his tracks. He steps aside from his responsibility only for a few brief seconds, and here he heads in the direction toward that which was captivating his attention. It's only after Moses turns aside that God speaks to him. Now, now can I just kind of take a time out here for a second? Listen. What, what, if, what if God really wants to do something in your life in a powerful way and show himself in a powerful way and teach you something about himself in a powerful way, but you've not yet stopped to turn aside and see what it is that he wants to say. I'm just so busy. I've got so much to do. 
You know, Christmas, we're a week away from Christmas. We got so much stuff going on. We got family coming. We're going to see family. We're all over the map. It's a busy time, isn't it? When is it not a busy time in our lives? I think it's, we're just busy people. But you see, the thing is, Moses is stepping away. He's stopping in his tracks, stepping away, and God sees when Moses steps away and looks. That's when God begins to, God has his attention. What does God have to use in your life to get your attention? C.S. Lewis said that God's megaphone is pain. <laughs> I, I can tell you from my life, oftentimes it's when I hurt. That's when God often s- tends to speak loudly and clearly. Sometimes I'm just so immune to his still small voice whenever I'm just so enthralled with life and it's go here and go there. But oftentimes when pain is introduced in my life, it's often then that God speaks in a very powerful way into my heart, into my life. The point is Moses stops. God speaks. And the application for us, like a burning bramble, it could be anything that God uses in an extraordinary way to get your attention so that he can show you something about himself. So Moses turns aside. Now notice what happens here. God begins to speak. God reveals himself to Moses. He calls Moses by name. Moses, Moses, there in verse 4. Aren't you glad that God knows your name? Now listen, you say there's not a lot of people who know who I am. The only one that matters knows who you are. God knows who you are. God knows right where he can find you. God will call you by name. And better than, better than that, in Jesus Christ, he'll give you a brand new name. He'll give you a future. So God is dealing with his servant here on an individual level, an individual basis. And he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses responds by saying, I'm right here. Here I am. Now look at this, verse 5, God says to Moses, don't come near, take your sandals off your feet because the place in which you're standing is holy, holy ground. There wasn't anything special about the dirt. There wasn't anything special about the bramble itself that was on fire, but what sanctified this patch of ground, what set it apart was the manifest presence of God that was right there in the midst of the bramble bush. And so Moses is learning a very valuable lesson here about God and his holiness. Now, we would call this his transcendence. It's a big fancy word, but it basically just simply means that God is, he is holy, he's transcendent. He's separate and distinct from creation. It's not a part of his creation, he's separate, holy, distinct, separate from his creation. You and I as sinful people, we know that God is holy He dwells in inapproachable light because he's transcendent, and yet here Moses is also learning that God, he's not just transcendent, but he's imminent. And that word imminent means close, near. How is it that this holy God can be both transcendent and imminent at the same time? Let me tell you, if, it, if he weren't, we'd have absolutely no hope because there's no way that sinful people like us could ever get to a holy God. No, because he's imminent, because he's faithful God, he comes to where we are. Listen. And he's done so in the person of his son, Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. 
That's a word that transcends both, a word that uh, uh, describes both God's transcendence. He's God. Oh, but he's imminent. He's with us. So again, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It's a foreshadow of what God is going to do through the gift of his own son to the world of sinful men. God then begins to describe to Moses what his intentions are for Israel. Now was the time for God to intervene and act in history, and God was going to bring them up out of their bondage in Egypt because he's a deliverer. God is a savior. That's who he is. And so you've got this very ordinary routine that Moses is going about. He has a supernatural encounter. One final thing, and I'll close with this. He's given a special assignment. Out of the midst of this bramble bush, God is speaking. God is manifesting himself in glory and power, and he's telling Moses, I'm going to save my people, but now here's the catch. Here's the thing. I'm going to use you to do it. <laughs> I, bet, I bet Moses probably like swallowed his tongue at that point or something. What? Me? Because later on in the chapter, you know, Moses is going to come up with every excuse in the world for why he can't be the rescuer. He can't, he can't go. He can't speak. He can't do this. He can't do that. And he begins offering God all of these kinds of excuses. But here's the thing. God has given him a very tangible illustration of how God can use just any old bramble. Any old bramble will do because it's not the bramble that matters it's the fire of God in the midst of the bramble. Are y'all tracking with me? The strength would not be in Moses and Moses' power. No, it would be God with Moses. The power and the glory of God working through Moses who would be his instrument. Let me tell you something. Our God uses ordinary brambles every day, doesn't he? There's nothing special about you or me. We're ordinary, run-of-the-mill brambles. But what makes all the difference is whether or not this bramble's possessed by God. Yes. Huh? What makes all the difference is whether or not God is in the midst. There's a fascinating thing that happens after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. The church is born at Pentecost. And something happens that had never before happened uh, up until that point in redemptive history. No longer would God place his manifest presence in a particular location like the temple or the tabernacle or a bramble bush. But now through the gift of his Holy Spirit who comes to live within believers, there's a sense in which every Christian is a burning bramble. Every Christian is just an ordinary bramble that God wants to use and set on fire to turn the world upside down for Jesus. You mean me? You mean four foot three little Lottie Moon? What was it that made all the difference in her life? She was just an ordinary bramble that was set on fire by the glory of God. You've got a platform, you've got a unique opportunity. You're a bramble that God wants to set on fire and burn bright and burn hot. But listen, it's not you or me that makes the difference. It's God. Any old bramble will do so long as it belongs to God. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning?
I love the story of Moses. There's so much practical application here and how it points us to the faithfulness of our God. Aren't you grateful that God is faithful? Has he proven himself faithful in your life over and over again? You say, what do I do, Pastor? I want to discern the will of God in my life. Listen, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to do what Moses did. Just show up. Do the next thing. Trust in the providential guiding hand of God. I'm just an ordinary bramble bush. You are too. But I'm telling you something. There is something about it when when God gets a hold of a man or a woman and sets them on fire. That was what was said of the early church. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. You know, our world is in a mess, isn't it? A lot of brokenness. A lot of people at each other's throats. People who know that there's something wrong in the world, but they... We're great when it comes to diagnosing symptoms, but we're terrible when it comes to pointing people to the cure. Folks, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ and his gospel is the cure. And God wants to use our church. He wants to use you as an individual Christian man or a woman to be a witness for Christ. Love your family. Love your neighbor. Look for opportunities where you can make much of Jesus. Because you know something? Any old bramble will do. But what makes the difference is whether or not you've been set on fire by the light of God's countenance. Heads bowed, eyes closed. We're going to sing here in just a moment. If, if you need to respond in any way this morning, the altar's open. You can come. You can pray. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe you need to come talk to someone, one of our pastors about baptism or membership in our local church, we'd invite you to come this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.